This podcast is sponsored by the Social Enterprise and Crowdfunding Conference. Learn more at secfc.co. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone. This is Devin Thorpe. I'm a Forbes contributor. I write the Social Entrepreneur column, and I have an extraordinary guest. Uh, anyone who follows my column knows that uh, we uh, have regularly brought on guests, and I, I just am uh, overawed by the opportunity to visit today with uh, someone who is a real role model for me, someone I look up to in a lot of ways. Uh, Mark Tursek is the CEO of the Nature Conservancy. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Devin. It's very nice to be here. So, uh, Mark, you are also, I, I guess what makes you special in my mind and I think in the minds of so many other people is that you have a Goldman Sachs background that seems at its surface level to be almost incongruent with uh, nature, cons the, the ideas of the Nature Conservancy, and yet you have uh, perfectly bridged this uh, leap. So tell us a little bit about your, your personal connection to the Nature Conservancy and how you made this transition from uh, investment banker to uh, a nonprofit leader. Sure. Uh, thank you for asking about my background. So, right, I worked at Goldman Sachs for 24 years. I had a very positive experience at the firm, and um, I know Wall Street became, you know, controversial and during the financial crisis, but my own experience was very positive. I, I worked with good people, uh, good clients, and I, I thought I learned a lot. Two things happened um, as in my career as an, as an investment banker. First, um, away from work, my wife and I became parents. We have four kids. Um, I happen to be a, a city boy by background. I grew up in the city of Cleveland and spent most of my life in cities, and my wife as well. And as parents, we wanted to uh, make a better effort to get our kids oh, exposed to the outdoors. So we did a lot of traveling and outdoor visits and spent time with a lot of nature guides, et cetera, and we learned a lot about the environment. And I got very excited about um, potential challenges to environmental solutions. And, of course, I was a business person, an investment banker at the same time. And I was always one of those business people who believes, and I still am, one of these people who believes that business properly guided and led can be a force for good. So I got very interested in bringing those two things together, business as a force to address environmental challenges that I was getting very um, interested in. And then late in my career, um, let's see, it was like 2005, I decided to leave Goldman Sachs. I was a pretty senior person there. Most people don't leave at that point in their career, but I decided to leave and go do something like this. My boss at the time was Hank Paulson. He then went on to be Secretary Treasury. He's a very committed and highly engaged conservationist. And he said, no, Mark, don't leave Goldman Sachs. Instead, please build an environmental effort for Goldman Sachs. And at the time, that was a kind of um, radical idea, really. Although today it's very commonplace. All great financial institutions have environmental efforts. But I agreed to do that. And my principal strategy was to um, help each part of Goldman Sachs have an environmental effort that would do two things. It would strengthen the business, and it would lead to uh, very good environmental outcomes. 
And at first people said, gosh, that sounds too good to be true. But the more we pushed that initiative along, the more we found of these win-win opportunities. And then I started to do the same thing in behalf of Goldman Sachs clients. And I really became a strong believer that, in fact, I was right. Business could be a powerful source of uh, constructive, positive action for the environment. So when the Nature Conservancy job opened, I had no choice really but to apply because it seemed to me to be the perfect organization for someone with my interests and even my background to try to bring this all together. So I was privileged to be named the CEO of TNC in mid-2008, and it's been a great experience ever since. Well, Mark, I, I appreciate you sharing that background because it does really help us frame our discussion today. There's one other thing I want to be sure to, to draw out from you, and that is after reading your book, Nature's Fortune, I, I have the clear uh, impression of you not as one who is uh, only operational, but, but you are uh, also passionate and thoughtful about these issues. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, how the book uh, allowed you to express some of your thoughts about the environment and nature? Yeah, writing the book was a really great experience for me. I had a co-author, Jonathan Adams, so I don't want to pretend I did it all by myself. Um, it was a tremendous amount of work. Um, I've read a lot of books. I like reading books. Never wrote one before, and I can report. It's a lot easier to read a book than write one. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, as I was doing my job at TNC, I really thought that the world, uh, broadly described, didn't understand that, in fact, protecting nature uh, is easier to do than they might think. A lot of people think protecting nature has to be at the expense of the economy or, or at the expense of, of human well-being. I actually think quite the contrary. Um, again, building on my experience at Goldman that we just talked about, I think there are a lot of these win-win opportunities. And in the book, what I try to argue is that if we, sometimes we environmentalists, I think, make a mistake. We think about nature as a luxury good. We love nature so much, we just argue that it should be protected for moral reasons. And our supporters believe that and support that. But mainstream society kind of checks out and they say, well, fine, we'll let these wealthy people protect nature because they like it, but we have more important things to do. We have to get on with protecting the economy. Well, in fact, I think if we instead think of nature as an investment base or an infrastructure, green infrastructure, that perspective suggests then that investments in nature are often the smartest investments we can make. And so in the book, I show how investments in agriculture, in forests, in urban natural situations, um, and on and on, we have many examples, how um, they're high return investments for business or for the government. And so you can have great business or economic outcomes and also great environmental outcomes together. That's, that's the, the argument of the book. Well, I appreciate you uh, helping us with that. Now, I, I want to jump in and ask you a, a really challenging question, if you'll, if you'll indulge me here. But as we look forward over the next 30 years and we look at climate change and the rate at which uh, carbon is being uh, uh, introduced into the atmosphere by our human activities, what is the, the best case scenario that you can conceive? How far can we get in turning the corner on carbon emissions and, and changing the, what seems to be the inevitable outcome of climate change? Yes, uh, it's a hard question to answer. We do, I, I do believe that climate change is, is the biggest of the threats we face. 
And um, there's no reason to be smug or overconfident here. We This is going to be a very, very tough challenge. And, you know, we should remember, this is a tougher environmental challenge than most. Uh, we're not asking people to protect um, a local water supply or deal with a local pollution issue in the real time. Rather, what we're asking people to do is to take steps today, to bear costs today, to um, protect uh, really people who are yet unborn from future disastrous climate change. And we have to do this on a globally coordinate, coordinated basis ultimately to be successful. So it's a very tough issue and therefore I don't think we should be too discouraged that we're not making progress as quickly as we would like. This is tough. Um, we don't really probably have 30 years, as you put it, to address this question or challenge. We need to move, move even more quickly. However, there is some good news. Um, in Europe and the U.S., in fact, emissions are way down. They're down to the levels that we saw in the 90s. Now, there are a number of factors behind that. You know, again, it's complicated. We've had a recession. So that's helped a little bit less manufacturing activity. We've exported some of our manufacturing to the developing world, so that's reduced our emissions. In the U.S., we've had the great benefit of natural gas being available at low cost, and so we're replacing in the U.S., from a carbon perspective, very dirty coal plants to generate electricity and replacing them with natural gas. But anyway, all those factors add up to some very significant reductions in emissions here. And so that's good. We have to make a lot more progress, though. We're not done. And somehow we have to hope that the progress we make in the U.S. and Europe will be rapid enough so that we'll also have the leverage or the, uh, the opportunity to persuade countries like China and India to ratchet down their emissions. It wasn't long ago that the U.S. was the biggest emitter. China overtook us, and now China's emissions are something like 60% greater than ours today. But of course, China's emissions on a per capita basis are very, very low compared to us. And China still has the challenge of lifting people from poverty. And so somehow we've got to help China um, realign its economy and, and the rest of the developing world so that they continue to have the economic growth that they require to lift people from poverty, but do so on a less greenhouse gas intensive way. So not easy to do, but I think, I think there is reason to be encouraged. And then in the U.S., you know, we get a little bit discouraged because climate and issues like that have become very partisan on Capitol Hill. It is discouraging. But if you shift your gaze away from D.C. and look at state governments or city governments across the U.S., in fact, you're seeing real progress. So um, it won't be easy. Uh, I think it will be very, very difficult, but it's, um, it, that's the work ahead. So, Mark, I wonder if there are some measures that you can give us in terms of understanding the progress that we could conceivably make. Is it looking at uh, global emissions compared to a historical figure? Is that a reasonable measure? And if we are reducing, is, the, is that the, a way to measure our progress? I'm just I'm trying to figure out how we can measure yeah. what, what can well, be done so that we're working toward a, a definable goal and not just talking about the, the somewhat more challenging and difficult to understand measure of improving. Yeah, we need to reduce emissions. That's the name of the game. Now, uh, people, um, you know, it gets rather technical, and also it's not exactly black and white. Um, the science of climate change is very clear, and the vast majority of science, some scientists, something like 99% of the scientists who have published on climate change agree that human-sourced greenhouse gas emissions are warming the climate in a very dangerous way. 
Now, so that about that there is really a consensus. It gets a little less clear in terms of how quickly reductions need to occur to achieve whichever targets we're seeking. And so I think we have to accept that there's some uncertainty there. But, but in a lot of respects, it doesn't matter. We need to reduce emissions, reduce, not slow the rate of growth, but reduce as fast as possible. As noted, the good news is we're doing that in the developing world. But understanding how difficult it will be to, in the developed world, we've made good progress, not in the developing economies. And we know it's going to be difficult for the Chinas and their brethren of the world because they have tremendous pressure to grow, to generate economy, uh, economic growth, to lift people out of poverty, and they have coal. So we have to hope that they slow their rate of growth down, but that's insufficient, of course, since we need an overall reduction. So in the developed world, we need to sharply reduce our emissions. That's the goal. Then you say, well, gosh, um, how are you going to do that? I think we have to accept that there's a lot of uncertainty in life. So a few years ago, I was part of the group that uh, worked hard to pass comprehensive climate and energy legislation in the U.S. And in fact, we had a bill passed the House, the Waxman-Markey bill, that called for a trajectory of emission reductions in the U.S. In my mind, sadly, the bill got bogged down in the Senate. It never passed, and we don't have that comprehensive climate legislation. Nevertheless, we are at a trajectory today of our own re reduction in emissions that is on the pathway envisioned by that bill because things we never expected happen, good news, especially natural gas. And I think we'll have those kinds of breakthroughs in other ways going forward. We, we better hope that we do. So we've got to bring down emissions. There's a lot of argument about what the right rate of, of the pace of reduction emissions is. Um, you know, Bill McKibben's group talks about uh, 350 uh, emission, carbon tons of emission. Others say what will be needed to equate the two degree changes of Celsius. But I don't want the audience to get lost in those details. Emissions need to come down. In the U.S., that's principally from electric power generation and transportation. Yeah. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about roles. Uh, what do you see as being the role of organizations like yours and Greenpeace in trying to bring about these changes? Yeah, I think there's um, two big things that the Nature Conservancy and organizations like us need to do. The first is public education. We really haven't done this job as well as we should have. Too few people understand how important it is to address this. Now, I noted it's easy to understand why. This is hard. This is harder than most environmental challenges. We're talking about bearing costs today to deal with a future problem, and we need to do so on a globally coordinated basis. So it's very difficult. Uh, and then any observer will note a lot of partisan politics has entered the discussion. I think that's regrettable because, of course, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you can't be for carbon pollution. You can't be for uh, climate change. So I think, we, I think organizations like ours need to lower the rhetoric, uh, introduce more calm, fact-based discussion, bring more people into the tent, and have a better o awareness of the challenge and the pathways forward. And so organizations like ours, I think, are well-positioned to do that. You mentioned Greenpeace. Uh, they've got a different set of strategies than the Nature Conservancy. They're a little bit more aggressive, if you will. They run campaigns sometimes that can be kind of tough. Uh, they go after bad guys, if you will. That's important, too. So there's kind of an ecosystem of environmental organizations. We each have different roles to play. But all of us somehow have to do a better job of elevating the level of understanding about this issue. And I think it's wrong to think environmentalists can do that by themselves. We need to do that in partnership with political leaders, 
And by the way, there's good progress at the city and state level there. We need to make more progress at the federal level. I think business leaders can help us, and they increasingly are. I think um, religious leaders can help, um, outdoorsmen, etc. But we need a, a calmer, broader discussion of the challenge ahead. That's one topic. And there's a second role I think organizations like ours need to play. Regrettably, even if we slashed our emissions today, um, climate change is going to happen. And so we're going to have to adapt to climate change. And ecosystems are going to be under tremendous pressure from climate change. Ecosystems are also going to provide us some of our best defenses or responses to climate change. And so conservation organizations like the Nature Conservancy are going to have to be very successful at raising the funds and political support for investments in nature that let us do that. That's a great point. Let's let's use that as a as stepping off point to talk about the role of government. What is the role of government, not just the U.S. government, what is the role of governments around the world in trying to bring an end to uh, or you know, the, achieve the radical reduction in uh, carbon emissions that is needed? Yeah, I, a really important question. So um, I'm proud of the private sector volunteer initiatives we have underway at the Nature Conservancy. They're great but they will be insufficient. On this front, we need the government uh, on our side. I think broadly there's two things governments need to do. First, they need to better tax carbon pollution. Um, you basically can emit carbon, dump carbon, uh, think of it as dumping pollution, for example, in, in your local uh, river system or, or, or lakes. You can do it for free. We need to put a tax on carbon pollution. As soon as we do that, people will make smarter choices about how they use energy. Uh, Carbon-based energy forms will become more expensive, so we'll use less of them. We'll also uh, narrow the gap between clean energy and dirty energy. And so um, I think it's very important in the U.S. we do this, and we do it around the world. Um, you know, you learn in Economics 101 in college, taxes are supposed to be used not just to raise revenue, but to discourage things you'd like to see less of. In America, we tax work. We tax labor and income. But those are things, of course, that we're for. We could replace those taxes with a tax on carbon and, and, and come out way ahead, even if you didn't believe in climate change. I think that would make sense. So that's number one, tax carbon pollution. Number two, I would say, is research and development. The good news is when we look back, humankind has had a, been really been on a roll recently with breakthroughs in technology, great innovations. We need that ingenuity now in the energy and transportation space. Uh, for example... Um, you know, we need, you see we're making good progress on the electric car front, but we need to accelerate that. Uh, we're making great progress at wind and solar energy transmission, but we need storage systems so that energy is available on, on cloudy days or when the wind's not blowing. Um, nuclear energy, it's controversial, but to me it seems we should be investing in R&D so that we can have safe, affordable nuclear power in the future. And finally, um, we need to see whether we can um, capture reduce, released uh, carbon emissions and store them so that they don't cause climate change. For example, there's carbon capture and sequestration programs to go with coal-fired plants, electricity plants. Today they look very expensive, but of course a lot of technology looks expensive in the early days, but if we can ride down the cost curve, it could make a very big difference. Governments sponsoring that kind of R&D I think could make a very big difference. <clears throat> That's great, great, great examples, and and let's go from there because a lot of what you're talking about is to drive innovation, 
And when you're talking about innovation, I, 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 my, my thought immediately goes to entrepreneurs. And what is the opportunity then for entrepreneurs to actually help create the solutions to, for uh, climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think this is exciting and a reason for optimism. Uh, our country, but all around the world, we've got great entrepreneurs, great technological breakthroughs happening. What can we expect to see in this space? I mean, we already have heroes like Elon Musk and his Tesla car. You know, the current model is a bit expensive, uh, but building on the success of that model, uh, Tesla's planning a, a mid-range and mid-priced car. That's exciting. Um, the cost of solar panels is plummeting. And it won't be surprising in the near term if everybody has solar panels on their rooftop. Of course, for that to work, we're going to need a smart grid, more effective uh, transmission. The utility sector has historically been kind of a boring part of the economy. It's where retired people would put their savings for safety. That's not the future in the utility sector. It needs to be a place where we see innovative breakthroughs. By the way, entrepreneurs can make a big difference in the nonprofit space, too. For example, one of the world's challenges is bringing energy to the billions of people, of poor, the billions of poor people around the world who lack energy and who often do some really harmful things to generate energy, harmful to the environment and harmful to their health. Well, there are social entrepreneurs now who are out there bringing solar power uh, to, to uh, vulnerable people in poor parts of the world, and it's very exciting. It can make a big difference for human development, economic development, and climate. So um, we're kind of counting on more and uh, innovation, more breakthroughs, and um, I think it's probably a reason to have some cautious optimism about the path ahead, and it's an area of some excitement, too. <clears throat> what do you see as being opportunities related to that for investors and philanthropists? So that people have money, and that can be large or small scale. Where should, where should that money be going in order to drive the kinds of activities you're talking about? Well, let me talk about nonprofits first, because that's that's my uh, that's my profession today. You know, in my book, I talk about investing in nature. So, at the Nature Conservancy, we love our philanthropic supporters. In fact, it, to me, it's amazing how generous people have been supporting all environmental nonprofits. There are a lot of very good environmental organizations. The Nature Conservancy is one, but I'm not really here today to pitch TNC. I know most of the world's uh, leading environmental nonprofits. I think they're all very good. All of us have one thing in common. Whether we're big or small, we're all under-resourced. And so the first thing I'd like to say in response to your question is, please support environmental nonprofit organizations. Support the one of your choice. Support the one whose strategy best aligns with your interests. And don't only support it by writing a check. Support it by getting engaged. It's amazing the difference that volunteers make at the Nature Conservancy. And I know that's true at other environmental nonprofits. But in addition to philanthropic support, we need investment support. So at the Nature Conservancy, we're spending a lot of time, and again, I talked about this in my book, thinking about nature as an investment opportunity. So we want investors, businesses, to invest in saving the world's rainforest, since protecting rainforest is the lowest cost and least risk risky way to reduce emissions. Um, and there are so many ways to invest in nature. One thing about the environment is climate change is going to be an enormous stress on ecosystems. But we've learned a healthy ecosystem is much better prepared to withstand the impact of climate than an unhealthy one. So for example, we have a uh, conservation preserve in the Pacific, uh, the Palmyra Atoll. It has beautiful coral reefs that of course are vulnerable to climate change. 
but that's all they're vulnerable to. There's no land-based pollution there. And we're paying close attention, but we see that those coral reefs withstand the effects of a warming, warming seawater much better than a coral reef that's also dealing with overfishing or land-based pollution. So one thing environmentalists like us will need to do is, is better bolster uh, ecosystems so they can withstand the effect of climate. And then there are so many other things. I mentioned communication already. Again, somehow we've got to get more people on the same page here. Let's practically deal with making progress in climate. Let's stop fighting so much. I think there's room for social entrepreneurs there, and they can be backed by uh, philanthropic investors. And then in the business world, no longer my area of, of professional expertise, but it used to be, all those things we're talking about, electric cars, smarter grids, solar thermal, wind, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, these are all pretty exciting investment opportunities. They're not free of risk. We don't know who the winners will be yet, but there is a lot of evidence that some really exciting breakthroughs are about to happen, and, and investors are going to make a lot of money. Well, that's a, that is encouraging. We all want to hear that. Now, let's talk a little bit about what uh, people can do. You know, there, I, I'm intrigued by one particular uh, feature of your operation, and, uh, in, and quite frankly, this is how I came into contact with you most recently with your organization. Uh, I was uh, booking a trip on Delta, and uh, they gave me the little uh, note at the end of the ticketing process to say, do you, if you want to buy some carbon credits, click here, and so I, I did. I followed the link, and, and I was really pleased, and, and maybe you don't want people to know this, but I was very pleased that it took me to the Nature Conservancy, and, they, and there was a little calculator, and very quickly I figured out that I should spend $6 to offset the credit of my cross-country trip. Um, and found that a very intriguing tool, but it seems like there are a lot of things that ordinary people can be doing every day to support your organization and to support climate change. What, what are those ordinary things that we should be doing every day? Thanks for asking the question. So, um, and you're very nice to reference that program we have with Delta. It's a great program. It's a, another great opportunity of the business sector helping us. So, you know, air transportation is, is um, you know, it's a big carbon footprint that goes with flying around. Uh, people want to fly around. They need to fly around. Well, it turns out you can offset your emissions uh, in a number of ways. Our program takes your dollars and, and, and directs them to protecting rainforests, where you will not, you'll have the good feeling of not only sequestering carbon on that basis, but protecting the world's rainforests. Precious store of biodiversity, uh, good for the indigenous people who live there. Um, you know, it's one of these win-win-win things. So people should be mindful of their footprints, do everything they can to reduce their own environmental footprint, and offset it along the lines you just described. But what else can people do? There's so much. Uh, we talked a little bit about our need for even more engaged government. Well, we're all voters. We're all citizens. And I think we all need to take our responsibilities as voters more seriously here and let our elected officials know that we care about these issues. We recently had, uh, we called it Capitol, Day here, Capitol Hill Day here in D.C., and we had trustees from every state in the U.S. descend on Capitol Hill the same day, and we called on every congresswoman and senator uh, in D.C. that day and made a big impression. But they need to hear more often from their constituents that these are priority issues. So number one, be an engaged citizen. Second, if you're a business person, push your business to be engaged here. Um, 
I haven't come across a business yet that won't have opportunities that are win-win. They can both do things that are good for the environment and also strengthen their business. But for some reasons, business leaders don't understand that as well as they should, or they're timid about sticking their neck, so we need to push and encourage them. Three, um, most people uh, our age are parents or uncles and have kids or nieces and nephews. We need to do everything we can to get today's young people to have a real conservation ethic. This is, uh, I think, more important than some people realize because I'm told by my scientists, my social scientists at TNC, that my kids, if they're statistically representative, spend less than one-third the time outdoors that I did, than I did when I was a kid. That's because kids today live more urban lifestyles, they're busier, they've got all these computers that distract them, and we worry that they're going to be a little bit uh, disconnected from nature. So we need to do everything we can to get young people connected to nature, and I think Folks our age can do that. And then fourth, I mentioned, um, none of this progress is going to happen without highly engaged nonprofits. I say that not to kind of toot TNC's horn, but to bring to folks' attention that these very worthy environmental organizations, we're one, really do need more support and engagement. So vote and engage as a citizen, push your business, build a conservation ethic in young people, and support environmental nonprofits would be four things I'd ask people to do. Well, fantastic. That's a great list. One last thing before we go. What, what are the things that people, young people especially, who are, who are framing careers, what should they be studying in college in order to have an impact? If they want to play and they want to play big, what do they study, what do they learn, what do they do in order to play a real role in yeah. uh, the environment? I love that question. And you know, it's, it, my answer, I think, is a positive one because there's a lot of concern today. Gosh, with jobs being automated, et cetera, with jobs being outsourced, what will our kids do? Well, good news in a sense, there will be a lot to do in the environmental space. Um, what to study? You could study physics and be on the cutting edge that comes up with these breakthroughs, these R&D breakthroughs that we'll need in energy and transportation. You could study biology and work with us, organizations like us, to bolster and protect ecosystems that are going to be so stressed by climate. Or, like I did, you can major in the liberal, liberal arts and work on your communication skills, your team building skills, your diplomat, diplomatic skills. We need to lower the rhetoric, lower the partisan fighting and arguing, and bring people together so that we can make substantive progress. I think the period ahead in that respect will be a very exciting one. Uh, you know, we, we really need people to engage and make, and make a difference, and I think today's young people are going to have to step up to that challenge. Well, fantastic. Uh, Mark, I just can't thank you enough for your time today. Let me ask you, will you indulge one last final question? Sure. Okay, so the, the final question is, as we look at big problems that the world faces uh, and, and really can work towards solving in the next 30 years, uh, one is climate change and another is poverty. And we've talked a little bit about how those two naturally collide a little bit. I wonder if you would speak specifically to things that we can do to help support the uh, developing world in bringing billions of people out of the out of poverty into the middle class without that completely upending our efforts to protect the environment and and uh, soften climate change. Yeah, a really good question, and I don't want to pretend to be an expert in economic development. But the way I see it, and the way all of us see it at the Nature Conservancy, as economic development and environmental protection really go hand in hand. I was in Colombia recently, and I called on the Minister of the Environment 
um, I saw the number two, the minister was away. And the number two in the ministry explained that they're now called the Ministry of the Environment and Sustainable Development. And I think that's exactly right. And when I think about our programs in the developing world, they're all designed to benefit local people as well as protect the environment. And what would examples be? I mean, we talked earlier about our work to save the world's rainforest. Most of the deforestation that's happening is already illegal. And so it's not like we can just make another law to prevent it from happening. Rather, we have to find sustainable, help arrange for sustainable livelihoods for the people who live in these rainforest communities. And that focus on sustainable livelihoods, I believe, generally results in better situations for these people. We also mentioned the effort to bring solar thermal, uh, solar energy to the developing world. It's a win-win. Otherwise, people are burning charcoal, things like this, bad for their health, health and bad for their environment. With solar energy, uh, their kids can read books, study, their health outcomes improve, and, and, and environmental issues are addressed. And, and so it goes back a little bit to your question about what should young people do. At TNC, we have a lot of scientists. Traditionally, they've been trained in biology. Increasingly, our scientists are trained in economics, in social science, uh, in politics, because these worlds are all coming together in, a, in an interesting way, and that's necessary if we're going to make the progress we need to make. Fantastic. Uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough for your time today. You've been extraordinary. You've been thoughtful. You've been helpful and uh, clear. And I, I uh, really commend you for the work you're doing and, and thank you for the time you've taken. Well, thank you, Devin. It's, it's very good of you and Forbes to, to bring attention to these important issues. So we thank you for your efforts. So uh, people can follow... Uh, Find you at uh, the Nature Conservancy. No, it's nature.org, right? Yep. We're nature.org, and I'm, I'm at Mark Tursick on Twitter, and I try to uh, file, all, file on all the interesting stuff we're doing. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Devin. Let's do some good. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devinthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devin hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com. The one-of-a-kind social enterprise and crowdfunding conference on September 26, 2014 at the spectacular Snowbird Resort near Salt Lake City will bring together leaders from across the country in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. Register before August 31 for just $60 at secfc.co. The roster of speakers will include Rodney Sampson, author of Kingonomics, Francis Batista, the leading animal rights advocate, and other luminaries. See the full list of speakers at secfc.co.
Social entrepreneurs attending the conference will have the opportunity to pitch real investors at the conference. Nonprofit leaders will also be given an opportunity to make a pitch for microgrants and to conduct a one-day crowdfunding campaign during the event. Learn more at secfc.co.